Dear Susie, you have a superb voice. You are my favorite animal in the program by far. Please find and close. Dear Sam, thank you very much. I got replaced as the raven because I yelled at Mrs. Lynn. After that, I was only a blue jay, but... Dear Susie, I'm sorry that your brothers are so selfish. Maybe they will grow out of it. Sometimes people do things without knowing the reasons for... Dear Sam, you are an excellent painter, especially trees and telephone poles. Is the girl in the water supposed to be me? My favorite color is... Dear Susie, I accidentally built a fire while I was sleepwalking. I have no memory of this, but my foster parents think I am lying. Unfortunately, it is... Dear Sam, I am in trouble again because I threw a rock through the window. My mother still has glass in her hair. Also... Dear Susie, I have been trying very hard to make friends, but I feel people do not like my personality. In fact, I can understand why they might not... Dear Sam, now I'm getting suspended because I got in a fight with Molly. She says I go berserk. Our principal is against me. Why do some... Dear Susie, I know your parents hurt your feelings, but they still love you. That is more important. If they... Dear Sam, I do think you should think of their faces every day, even if it makes you sad. It is too bad they did not leave you more pictures of themselves. Can you... Dear Susie, here is my plan. Dear Sam, my answer is yes. Dear Susie, one. Dear Sam, where? Dear Susie, walk 400 yards due north from your house to the dirt path which has not got any name on it. Turn right and follow to the end. I will meet you in the meadow. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 203, Moonrise Kingdom. Going to try to keep this one under control, uh, not get too crazy with the timeline. Whatever right? happens, happens. That's true, yeah. There's no limit. There's not a plan. Matt isn't editing the show anymore. We don't have to start panicking at an hour and five minutes. <laughs> we'll start sweating. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do anything. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my life now. Right, right. I dedicate such a huge chunk of my life to this podcast. I hope you all appreciate it. Certainly. And according to the recent reviews on Apple Podcasts, there are people we that have, appreciate it. We uh, have shamed people into just <laughs> pumping us with positive reviews. We've been demanding positive reviews, and we've received a few, and we are very thankful. That's right. The uh, Ask Clown community has shown up, really helped get us through a tough time. But if you haven't given us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, what are, what are you, are you waiting for? Yeah. Please do it. <laughs> we love it, though. We don't take it for granted at all. We take screenshots and send them back to it well i send them to you mostly yeah. and but then i like screen i like send them to my family and stuff <laughs> <Let's> see, <laughs> like, see. <laughs> it's not a waste yeah we love it it makes it all seem worth it even when i'm dedicating upwards of 20 plus hours on one episode of this stupid show so, i mean there's nothing else to do yeah so that's it's true okay. and we had a lot of fun talking about jurassic park and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But now the fun is over, and it's back to boring movies. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We love Wes Anderson. That's right. There this was one? definitely a time when Wes Anderson was my favorite director, probably oh, yeah. like up there with a Tarantino or whoever. That's definitely changed over the last 
decade yeah. plus. But, well, this I feel like was know. in the time period where the Wes Anderson kind of pushback was really starting to be at a higher level where, where people, it just didn't really seem like he was beloved in the way that he was in the 2000s. But I don't know. You it, mean pre this movie or post? Because this movie was wildly successful compared to the yeah, ones that came before Yeah, I know, but I'm more it. talking about cinephiles starting to be like annoyed with him. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I agree with that. All I think right. this movie was pretty beloved by the critics and audiences alike. Yeah. The biggest pushback with this movie is that the dog gets killed. Yeah, which, which usually bothers me. People. That usually upsets me in a movie. Not this one, though. Well, you barely know it. Yeah. And it's... It's, and it's sort of comical. Yeah, it's not horrifying like in uh, Funny Games or something where it's just <laughs> a dog just brutally murdered. So before we jump into Moonrise Kingdom from 2012, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, and throw us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have not yet done so. It means a lot to us, and we thank you for listening and for any reviews you may give us. Yeah, that's right. I, or tweets I, I or really, whatever. Yeah, it, it's fine. If you want to give us a one-star review, I'm okay with that too. Only if you give us the review, though, not yeah. just the rating. We need to see that review. Yeah, let us know <laughs> what we did to piss you off. And you also need to leave your name and address <laughs> for that's right. unrelated reasons. <laughs> so Moonrise Kingdom came out in 2012, directed by Wes Anderson, written by Anderson and his sometimes collaborator, Roman Coppola. Yeah. Who had written? Well, he's definitely he was on Darjeeling Limited. Darjeeling Limited. Jason Schwartzman, and he would go on to write Grand Budapest Hotel. Grand Budapest, and I think also Isle of Dogs, maybe as well. I don't know if he's involved with the French Dispatch or not, but doesn't really matter. Yeah, I must feel like it's a yes, if I recall from looking it up. Moonrise Kingdom stars Bruce Willis, Ed Norton. Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, Jason Schwartzman, Bob Balaban, Harvey Keitel, it and is newcomers fun. Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward. I always think it's fun when you get like the big names showing up in in, in a Wes Anderson movie because you have the regulars. Like you always know Jason Schwartzman and Owen Wilson are going to be good in whatever. I think role this they was do. the first one Owen Wilson was not involved with in any way. Yeah. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, that seems probably right. But it is fun when you start having like an Edward Norton and Bruce Willis appear in one of these movies to see like how they'll fit into a Wes Anderson world. Moonrise Kingdom is sort of a comeback for Wes Anderson, contrary to what Matt was trying to push out there. <laughs> and because, frankly, the movies leading up to this one were not successful, box office wise, and the reviews were kind of mixed, especially for like Life Aquatic, which I now think is sort of maybe anderson's most underrated movie yeah in a way i kind of love from, life aquatic from a pure comedy standpoint it might be one of the funniest but fantastic mr fox cost a decent amount of money to make and it barely broke even which means it probably lost a significant amount of money after yeah, yeah. all things were factored in and he was only given a small budget for him of 16 million to make this movie and it went out and it became his highest earning movie to that point at $68.3 million, which is not a lot compared to some of the other directors when we talk about them. But it would lead to the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is Anderson's most successful film, box office-wise. That's right, yeah. Which is shocking. Yeah, yeah. By a lot. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I certainly remember this movie being reviewed positively, but you know, someone like me who keeps his ear to the street of 
you know, different <laughs> podcasts. And I, I just remember back around this time, it just seemed like people were kind of being like, yeah, you know, I still I still like Wes Anderson, but it, the twee thing is starting to get a bit much for me. I don't know. I, I feel like I remember. Well, kind of I kind of that. feel like everything post Royal Tenenbaums was starting to the slope was getting more and more slippery as to how much is this based in reality anymore and just now this imaginary world yeah, where yeah. everything is like a certain pastel color and right, every right. shot is perfectly centered and you know and it's all sort of an imaginary world and a lot of the stuff in Moonrise Kingdom is imaginary they're made up islands and right. made up places and that's definitely his style, but I think the cool thing about Wes Anderson is, as far as like the working auteurs in Hollywood and in mainstream American film, he's one of like the only one that has a distinctive style and totally. look. Yeah, even a lot of guys that are far more successful than him and that are far bigger names, and people associate them with movies. It's harder to pick out things in their work that distinguishes it as a film by that person, like Steven Spielberg now. Sure. It'd be hard to tell. Oh, yeah. If you just saw Ready Player One. uh, Oh, yeah. Like, there's nothing about what you see on screen that makes you. Part of that is somebody like Spielberg, of course, is one of the most influential directors. So there's a lot of people who have taken his style. But it's also because he's been a director for so long. And I think he's sort of lost the passion. But whatever. There are a lot of mainstream directors that don't really have anything about them. That Certainly. makes it their work. Right, and not in Anderson's, this way. you can tell immediately. Oh, absolutely. You recognize the cinematography of David Fincher or Christopher Nolan or even like J.J. Abrams usually with some lens flare. But, well, yeah, the one thing with J.J. Abrams, yeah, yeah. the lens flare. Um, or like Tarantino, the dialogue, yeah, yeah. you can kind of tell. Right. But yeah, like the overall look setting, what you're consistently seeing on screen, yeah, I, I would say there's nothing like what we have with Wes Anderson. Moonrise Kingdom earned an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, which I believe Anderson's films had been nominated back with Royal Tenenbaums. I think that also had a screenplay nomination mm-hmm. as well. That seems right. I don't think any of Anderson's movies have ever won an Oscar, as far as I know. That's what I'm saying. The Academy was pushing back on him a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think in some people's minds he peaked with Royal Tenenbaums, and it's just been like kind of a free fall since, but he's now gained some relevancy yeah. because his movies are a little bit more mainstream popular. I always for some reason. think it's an event when there's a Wes Anderson movie coming out, even if I'm not as interested in the content that I would be for one of his other movies. I'm always excited for one of his movies to come out. Yeah, this time after the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was PG 13 in a movie, or maybe it was even PG, I don't know, it was a movie that I had zero interest in. Saw it in the theater, thought it was okay. Then he follows it up with a PG-13 movie, and I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't need a movie to be rated R for it to be yeah. great. Obviously, Jurassic Park's not rated R, but you start thinking, like, well, okay, the two leads in this movie are children. Well, Is this movie yeah. aimed towards kids? You start getting a little bit concerned. And one of the things that Wes Anderson does well is the dark comedy, and that's usually filled with many curse words. Not even many. It's not well, yeah. like... Okay, well-placed. Yeah, Let's well-placed, well-timed. Like having Bill Murray scream the F-word or something would have right, been right. funny. Even in this movie, there were a couple of places where he probably could have. But ultimately, I saw this movie in the theater and, and enjoyed it. I think in preparation for this episode and re-watching it, I started to like it even more. It's weird because it is one of the things that happens with time, <laughs> just naturally. Because like, 
you talk about certain eras and I think for a while I was associating this with like the most recent era of Wes Anderson movies being like this Grand Budapest Hotel but like I don't know now watching it I'm almost more this is closer to Darjeeling Limited than (laughs) (laughs) I just think the subject matter connects with me now the older I get which is weird because it's about young love and true this first relationship and discovering sexuality and all this different stuff which we'll get to but you can sort of start to see past the 1965 element of it yeah the older you get and you start to see the universality of your first innocent young love and you can see the influences that anderson brought into it from a lot of foreign films like of children and sort of children involved in like crime stories and stuff there's sort of a a wistful nostalgic remembrance of these things yeah. of first love that anderson embellishes artistically in his fashion and makes it his own but you can still connect to even if this is the first wes anderson movie you've ever seen and you don't really quite understand why it's all framed a certain way and <laughs> why it has this kind of weird aesthetic yeah, you can sort of get past that. And I think that's why Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel became big successes because it's almost as if the movie going public just sort of embraced like his odd yeah. quirkiness and sort of like looked past it. In a, it wasn't as confrontational as Royal Tenenbaum's Life Aquatic Darjeeling Limited, which is like very, there's like an angst to it. And I do think that Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel have an angst, but it's sure. like it's softer. Yeah, it's tampered down a little bit. Maybe it's all the pastel colors, but <laughs> yeah. somehow the audience is like let in easier, I think. So Moonrise Kingdom touches on young love and sexuality and stuff like that, but it, there's also a significant emphasis on the mental health of children and yeah. mental health in general, because both of these kids are considered disturbed it in definitely, some way. Right. And certainly rightfully so in the boys version for some of the things that he's gone through. I'm sure you can say it for, I don't know. Characters. I feel like the girl is, I feel like Susie is a little bit more wild in some way. Yeah. She's her anger just comes out of nowhere. Well, that's true. Yeah. There, and there's definitely some issues there, but yeah, I mean, I would say, That's stuff that I can certainly dial into more watching from an older age. And this is something that I think is probably an experience for many when this movie came out to some degree. There was definitely a discomfort for me watching sexuality be explored, even to a more innocent degree. But with kids, it's just not something that you see uh, explored on film very often. So there is a weird, unsettling feeling to that. But that's something that I would say, and I watched it twice to get ready for this episode that i i did not feel that anymore yeah because you're just a bigger creep now yeah exactly no i know what you mean i think in public in a theater setting it was definitely more awkward because you could kind of feel a tension or think about someone watching this movie with like their parents or something it just seems weird but ultimately once you've seen the movie you understand that it's never gonna it doesn't even really come close to anything like that inappropriate. Right, yeah. It just sort of flirts with it for a second. The first time you see it, especially when you're around people who also haven't seen it, there's like an uneasy feeling of like, what is this? But it's rated PG-13, and you know that it's not going to really be... It's not like kids or yeah, something. Right. <laughs> Where you're just like, oh my god, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> we're making AIDS this, is involved. We're making this seem like it's some sort of like very controversial movie. This movie's rated PG thirteen, and there's sort of like a comical 
boner joke at one point. Oh, yeah, And yeah. he feels her chest. But it's very brief. It's very realistic and non-exploitative. It, yeah, You I know, agree. I think sometimes you do have to, like, relax about some of this stuff that it's not as big of a deal as it seems on the surface just because we've been trained to, like, freak out about everything all the time. Yeah. And I think it's just, like, kind of capturing the awkwardness of young love blossoming and people uh, exploring this stuff for the first time, which I think is something that most of us don't want to revisit from our own lives. Well, that's the thing that I think gets easier as you get older because you start to – to view that stuff more positively and right. get past the That's embarrassment. And you're just sort of like, you can laugh at like yourself about it. A golden age of your life. Yeah. That you're never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, Moonrise Kingdom just becomes as depressing as anything else in my life. Yeah, where I'm just like, somehow I feel like there's a golden age that you'll never get back. Like moment in everything we talk about. <laughs> Even things that we didn't live through. Like right. once upon a time in yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> this is the Island of New Penzance. 16 miles long, forested with old-growth pine and maple, crisscrossed by shallow tidal creeks, Chickchaw territory. There are no paved roads, but here comes Jed with the mail. But instead, many miles of intersecting footpaths and dirt trails and a ferry that runs twice daily from Stone Cove. The year is 1965. We are on the far edge of Black Beacon Sound, famous for the ferocious and well-documented storm which will strike from the east on the 5th of September in three days' time. So the movie takes place predominantly on the fictional New England island of New Penzance, and we meet Sam and Susie, and we find out about their situations in the fading golden light of the summer of 1965. That's also something that I don't even think I ever really was paying attention to the first time I saw this or the first couple times I saw it. That the fact that it's set in 1965, because once you get into the movie, it doesn't really... Yeah, there's nothing there's not that like ties t- it yeah. too hard to that. And I think Coppola and Anderson sort of just pick that at random. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not like they're old enough to have been this age in 1965. It just sort of was a yeah. random thing and i mean they're on this island and it's kind of isolated but the things that you see don't make you feel like it's so out of current time even i think it was maybe more of a way to explain a way why some things are missing not why some things are there yeah yeah sam is an orphan he's an outcast he's attending this camp ivanhoe which is a khaki scout summer camp led by Scoutmaster randy ward played by ed norton Yeah, who would probably be removed from his role (laughs) following the events of this movie. I think Anderson wanted to cast Ed Norton because he saw his appearance as more of like a a Norman Rockwell painting, like an all-American appearance, which I'm not really sure I see. Ed Norton always kind of reads a little bit crazier to me, but maybe that's just because of the roles he's taken. That's true. I will say that his performance in the movie is probably the most surprising I can kind of buy Bruce Willis as this kind of sad sack loser. <laughs> Same. And Francis McNorman and and Bill Murray aren't really stretching too hard. It's no, no. sort of what they're always doing. But Ed Norton's performance is sort of like a goofy but likable guy. Yeah, not too much of a character that you'd be used who to seeing. Who seems him like in over his head a little bit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But is well meaning ultimately. Susie lives on the island with her parents 
played by Murray and McDormand and her three younger brothers. Right. Their house is simply called Summer's End. Yeah, which is pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool house name. Yeah. Like they don't have a no address, street no or number. Yeah. a number or anything because there's no roads on New Penzance Island. It's just paths and stuff yeah. and the mail comes via airplane. And now, both the parents are, are lawyers and I just feel like they're pointing out like <laughs> I mean, rich people have to you have to be rich to live on an island, I feel like. That's true, but this is 1965. Everything property was a lot different. Yeah, everything was just different as far as like the economy and how much things cost and how much people made. It just it's hard to even relate it. That's to true. Now. Yeah, because it doesn't really seem that desirable to live there, though. It kind of is to me. <laughs> just like you would like it with no roads. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> no movie theater. I need like a movie theater on the island. And Sam and Susie are our. Star-crossed lovers, essentially. They're both 12-year-olds. They're both precocious for their age and thus isolated from family or potential friends in their own way. There's a certain quiet wisdom and maturity despite their issues that they both have. Yeah. The way they talk, the way they relate. And you can very much see that this is what Anderson would think of like himself as this age or yeah, something. Yeah, well Sam definitely seems like there's a an effort to establish himself as almost an adult like presence that knows what he's doing. But then you it's know It's always undercut by his admissions that, that he needs water floaties or he might wet the, the bed, bed yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> we start with Sam disappearing from camp. DeLuca, the train inspection. Roosevelt, how's that lanyard coming? Horrible. Kotak, what's all this lumber for? We're building a treehouse. Where? Right here. That's not a safe altitude. Why is it up so high? If someone falls from there, that's a guaranteed death. Well, where would you have built it? Lower. What are you doing? Pest control. Burning some ants. Spot checked. Your socks are down, your shirt tails are untucked, your trousers are not properly pressed. You are reported for a uniform violation. How many rockets do you have to, Penagle? Sixteen and a half, sir. Is that enough for the hullabaloo? Izod, go fetch another pint of gunpowder from the armory shed. Benford, pull! I saw that. How fast were you just going? Safety test, sir. Come again? The vehicle appears to be in good working order. I'm just checking if... Uh... Reckless cycling. Second warning. Next time I take away the keys. Warning, Chef. Shukoski, breakfast. Shukoski, you in there? Sam? 
could zip from the inside. Jiminy Cricket, he flew the coop. Yeah, I do kind of like the way they set this up where we have a little, like, intro to what's going on current day. Then it flashes back to, like, how we got to this. Yeah. In his tent, there's, like, a poster of Raquel Welch or, or Rita Hayworth. It's, like, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's a hole, and he's left a letter of resignation from the Khaki Scouts. So Randy's like, all right, well... <laughs> I, I let a 12-year-old run loose here now. <laughs> I love that he needs to cut a hole out the side of the tent to escape. <laughs> yeah. You would actually think it would, I don't know. I don't really know why worse. he would do yeah. that. So Randy gets Captain Sharp involved, and Captain Sharp is played by Bruce Willis. He's seemingly the only policeman on the island. Yeah. What He's, a great gig that would be. Oh, my God. I know. I was thinking <laughs> that the whole time. <laughs> the two of them get together and contact sam's folks but they discover that he's an orphan and he's living with a foster family and this guy the foster dad on the phone is basically like yeah we can't have him back we've come to a decision as a family (laughs) we can't invite him back (laughs) we're not understanding yeah at this point they don't even know that it's a foster family so randy and captain sharp are like what the fuck (laughs) i don't understand your comment sir you can't invite him back So now we've got a runaway kid, and there's no one that really cares about him, basically. Yeah, and I think the assumption here is, like, he's now a ward of the state, and even though Captain Sharp is supposedly a policeman, he doesn't really seem to know what that means exactly. Randy, who understands that Sam is sort of the least popular kid in his troop, is now feeling, like, this guilt and responsibility of, well, what the fuck happened now is taking an even stronger interest beyond just the fact of like, well, we have to find him. Now he's thinking we have to find him. And now what is he coming back to? It doesn't seem like anything. So it's sort of a bad situation for everyone. That's a scoutmaster ward tells the other khaki scouts to use their skills to set up a search party and find Sam. It does not seem Sam was particularly well liked amongst the group. (laughs) Yeah. There's all sorts of talk about having to use force to get him to come back. Yeah. The cut, of that situation where Redford played by a very young Lucas Hedges is suggesting that they might need to use force. And then he's telling one of the other scouts, I'm not going to be the one who's caught without a weapon. And then they cut to them having weapons. And the one kid just has like a bat with like nails (laughs) in it. (laughs) The craziest weapons. And they're all trudging through the woods, brandishing the weapons. That's actually a pretty funny moment. Redford is basically Sam's nemesis from the troop, which will pop up throughout the film. For kind of unclear reasons. I guess just... In I the way it, that sometimes kids just don't yeah, like each other. That's it's right. Just, Sam seems like he's probably been bullied amongst the troop. Captain Sharp drives all over the island, knocking on doors and showing Sam's picture around, finally ending up at Summer's End, talking with Susie's parents. At this point... They don't know Sam and don't recognize him and haven't seen him. But Laura, who's McDormand, she sneaks out a moment later for a secret rendezvous with Sharp. And we see Susie, 
observe her mother with binoculars. So basically, oh yeah. there's a secret affair going on between Laura and Captain Sharp. It seems like this would be hard to keep under wraps on an island. But then again, I'm like, it's not that clear to me that she wants to keep it under wraps. Yeah, we don't know exactly how long this has been going on. I was telling you before the show, I was finding myself finding Frances McDormand to be like a hot older woman in this movie. Yeah, definitely. Very quick, brief breast flash right yeah. at the front of the film. Kind of a out shock. Out of nowhere in you a PG-13. Have, you certainly have to have an eye for it, but... Oh, I got that eye. Yeah. I've got the eye for it. I, sure I saw can. that first viewing. I was like, whoa, <laughs> did not expect that. You're like asking the projectionist to run back the film. Hold on. Stop. <laughs> Stop the film. <laughs> Susie then packs her bags and runs away from home, meeting Sam in a field. And I guess one of the things that ties this closely to 1965 is the way that Susie's dressed. Sort of like the high socks. Right. With the quote Sunday school shoes and like the short dress, yeah. Although Sam, I mean, like, he's wearing a khaki scout uniform, which I guess is a Boy Scout uniform, is virtually unchanged. In her 50 outfit years. also kind of seemed like something that a hipster chick would wear in 2012, though. Isn't that always the case? Yeah, though, with this <laughs> really? stuff. Yes. <laughs> so we get a flashback, and suddenly it's the summer of 1964, the year prior, at St. Jack's Church. We don't quite have the geography of this down yet but saint jack's island is a different island yeah yeah it's sort of like a pair of islands off the coast of some new england area i think they actually filmed this in rhode island yeah i think which is shockingly not an island yeah right in (laughs) narragansett which i actually spent a decent amount of time there when i was a kid living in massachusetts (laughs) douchebag (laughs) (laughs) i don't remember it looking like this though but the look of it kind of looks more like like Maine to me or something, but the look of it looks like 1965, like the nature. That's true. <laughs> like nature doesn't look like that <laughs> right. anymore. Yeah, it's all kind of it's a lot more brown now. You couldn't really imagine like the little inlet that they rename Moonrise Kingdom. You couldn't actually imagine that existing anywhere. No, no. And it makes me wonder: is that even real? Like, I don't know. I think it's real. <laughs> it looks too perfect. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Maybe Rhode Island's just really nice. There's still corners there. of the earth, you know. I guess. That haven't been destroyed. At St. Jack's Church in the summer of 1964, there's a performance of something called Noise Flood. I'm guessing on the Noah's pronunciation. Flood? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But it's it's an opera, a one-act opera written about Noah's Ark and the Flood, which is sort of a running theme throughout this movie and will yeah. come up at the end. Right. I and mean, everything. They foreshadow even early on this Hurricane Maybelline or something. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the guy that wrote this thing is English, so I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's N-O-Y-E apostrophe S-F-L-U-D-D-E, which seems like it's another language yeah, to me. Yeah, noise fluid. Sam is in attendance. He's sort of a junior khaki scout, I guess, and he sneaks off, and he ends up finding the dressing room. Yeah, pretty bold move, really. I would say Sam is a bold kid. You got to give him credit for this move. He's a weirdo, but he's got like a almost unhealthy amount of confidence. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say, okay, listen, it's not a good thing to like sneak into the girl's dressing room. But like the way that he approaches Susie, how could she not be in? Yeah. Well, I don't think that he knew that it was the girl's dressing room specifically. Okay, fair. He's just bored. (laughs) But yeah, there's these girls 
lined up dressed as different birds, and he singles Susie out, who's dressed as a raven. Yeah. What do you think of that girl that tries to weigh in and start listing off every girl? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can kind of just get a sense of how, how it's going to work out is. for her. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> What kind of bird are you? I'm a sparrow. She's a dog. No, I said. What kind of bird are you? I'm a raven. Boys aren't allowed in here. I'll be leaving soon. What happened to your hand? I got hit in the mirror. Really? How did that happen? I lost my temper myself. What's your name? Sam, what's yours? I'm Susie. It's not polite to stare. Birds, ready. Who are you? Where did you come from? Go back to your seat. He likes you. So Sam and Susie become pen pals. Over the course of the film, we'll learn that they had this secret pact to meet up all along, just based off of this one meeting, I guess, when they were like 11, which is crazy. Yeah. Well, I, they made a connection. I don't know that I would have been ready. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm talking to a girl in this way yeah, at 11. And there's a lot of commitment to being a pen pal. The pen pal part is actually more believable because yeah. you don't have to see them. Well, fine. And but that actually, they don't address that head on, but there is that moment of awkwardness where they first meet up in the field as if remembering each other in a way. Yeah. Because this is like pre-internet. It's not like they were looking at pictures of each other on Facebook or Instagram. Well, that's true. They're like, oh yeah, this is what you look like. I forgot. <laughs> and I guess it probably both their situations like help keep this going because she lives on this island, which like there can't be much for a kid to do. And then his home life doesn't even <laughs> yeah it seems fake right when we see flashes of it because when you think about yourself as a kid or at this age or whatever it's so hard to, a year is so long during the, and so oh many God, things happen like you just move on in a way it ties in with a very early episode of the pod which of oh course boy. is the lake and back to the lake <laughs> from wonder years yeah that's right something that i don't think we'll ever get over those episodes yeah that's right everyone i mean the episodes of the wonder years not our shitty episode of the podcast <laughs> well we won't get over those either but that's for a different reason <laughs> yeah and in that you're right this romance burned very hot for kevin arnold but yeah. the point of back to the lake was even though he had gotten the letter from Kara, which is oddly enough Susie's real name yeah <laughs> even though he had gotten the picture and the letter he sort of was just he like just like never writes her you back know, it was yeah he just Never thought he was going to see her again, so yeah. he gives a shit. But then changes his mind, which is the great part of Back yeah. to the Lake. <laughs> Just an unbelievable episode of television. <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it, I forget what season that is, but check it out. I'm sure The Wonder Years is streaming somewhere. But yeah, <laughs> these two committed to the cause, keep it going, and make it to this moment. Right away, Sam is trying to impress her with these dumb survivalist tips that he thinks he knows and... He's saying all of this stuff to her, and it's it's actually pretty funny because it's so dumb. You can tell which way the wind is blowing by throwing these twigs up in the air. <laughs> they just fall straight down, and she's just like, which way was it? And he's like, I don't know. 
He's like, if you're thirsty, you could suck on a rock and swallow your spit. <laughs> and so then it, later they try it, and then they just spit the rocks out. And he's like, I brought water, too. <laughs> so dumb. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, you could stay. I forget like what he says, but he's like, you could stay cool this way or whatever. And she's like, well, you could take off that hat because he's wearing like a coonskin cap That's or right. something. <laughs> How long was this going to be sustainable for these two? I have to give him credit. They last way longer than I would have. Well, this is like the than I would now. beautiful thing about this movie is they clearly just don't really have a plan right. for the future. They're just like, oh, yeah, we're running away together. I'm never going to see my family again. That's like the second half of the movie. Yeah. The second time they run away. And you're like, what is the plan exactly? <laughs> but they're just so committed to it. It's sort of just a beautiful thing. Yeah, you that's just, right. You, you love it as someone watching it. But, yeah, the reality of the situation something horrible is going to happen <laughs> i don't know what that would be <laughs> the pair hike camp and fish in the wilderness with the goal of reaching a secluded cove on the island which is sort of this unnamed inlet on the map and over this time period we get to know Susie and cara hayward the actress was somewhat familiar with wes anderson and she said that she had seen the royal tenenbaums and chose to model Susie after Margot Tenenbaum, what? Gwyneth Paltrow's character. And you can kind of see the similarities. I'd say so, yeah. Susie seems to be experiencing depression and anger. Both of them are, quote, disturbed children. Has had some explosions, certainly, in her time. And Susie found a book on the refrigerator <laughs> entitled Coping with the Troubled Child. Which yeah. apparently is based off of something that happened to Wes Anderson. <laughs> I think I, I, I think my parents think had that like, book. Yeah, I think a lot of people's parents had stuff like that just because everyone's panicking, especially if it's like their first kid and they think like every single thing is like a big deal. That's actually not true though for me. It's like the opposite. My Coping parents... with a horribly boring and annoying yeah. child. <laughs> I was like I think I was like a pretty happy kid. It didn't start going off the rails until like my teenage years. You were finding books like, oh no, my son is a blithering idiot. <laughs> <laughs> He's so annoying we want to give him back. And you're like, you're just like, back to where? <laughs> the it hospital. Just, it led to a whole series of questions. Yeah. You're not even sure what's going on. <laughs> These are my books. I like stories with magic powers in them, either in kingdoms on Earth or on foreign planets. Usually I prefer a girl hero, but not always. I couldn't bring them all because it got too heavy. You can buy one you want. Thank you. I also brought my lefty scissors because I'm left-handed. Some rubber bands, uh-huh. extra batteries, my toothbrush, and my binoculars, as you know. Yeah. I forgot my comb, but I'll use my fingers. Wait. These are all library books. In my school, you're only allowed to check out one at a time. Some of these are going to be overdue. Do you steal? Why? You're not poor. I might turn some of them back in one day. I haven't decided yet. I know it's bad. I think I just took them to have a secret to keep. Anyway, for some reason, it makes me feel in a better mood sometimes. Are you depressed? How come? 
Well, I can show you an example if you'd like. But it doesn't make me feel very good. Anyway, I found this on top of our refrigerator. Does that mean you? I think so. Are you laughing? It's not funny. You really know how to make friends. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. I'm on your side. I know. Thank you. Pretty early on, Sam almost blows it, though, because he laughs, which upsets Susie. And she goes into the tent and yeah. she's like crying. Legendary move to just have a girl confess something to you and you laugh at her. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a reminder of their immaturity, but also Sam's inexperience dealing with anyone. Well, the other thing about him is Sam does seem like he has some admirable qualities, but sense of humor isn't really one of them. He doesn't really <laughs> seem like he laughs at anything. Yeah, which makes you think that his reaction to this story about the book and everything is more that he just doesn't really know how to process this. Yeah. Or he relates it to his own experiences or something, that he's not really, like, laughing at her. Right. But he just, he's sort of having, like, a... Well, we know he wouldn't do anything intentionally to upset her. (laughs) Wes and Roman both pulling life experiences to sort of form the backstory of the two kids. I guess, like, Roman's... Mother Eleanor Coppola would use like a megaphone to like yell throughout the <laughs> That's house. That's hilarious. Which is what Francis McDormand does in the movie. Like I said, Wes found a book like the one that Susie finds, and he's like, I didn't need to ask who the troubled child was or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Susie's big thing is these library books, mostly dealing with magic and fantasy and just typical kids' bullshit. They. In typical Wes Anderson fashion, they went ahead and created all of these books oh, and had sure. artists yeah. design the covers. And I think Anderson wrote out the fake text that she reads at various points when she reads out from the books. Right. But the reading scenes throughout the movie are sort of like pivotal moments in terms of the plot, and they signify different things. And so this first time that she reads to Sam, it's sort of like their connection together. And then later on... We'll get to those times. But I always enjoy her reading out loud and just the cut to whoever she's reading to, just enjoying it so much. And I'm 100% buying how into books she is because, again, I'm just like, you're a kid living on this island. I mean, what are the options here? One of the things that's sort of unanswered by the movie but makes me wonder is we do see in that sort of montage of their pen pal relationship scenes of her being in school with other kids yeah so do they have to like take a boat or a a ferry or something to school every day because i can't imagine there's enough kids on the island to have a whole school well there has to be a ferry that runs to the island right because i mean people have cars on the island i don't know they make (laughs) it seem like the mail is just delivered (laughs) you're like how do they have cars in hawaii i don't even understand this (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, at some point, there are boats that bring things. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just whatever is somewhere, that's where it is forever. <laughs> it can't ever leave. They had to build all the cars there. You'd think there'd be, like, one bridge. There's either a bridge or there has to be a, a ferry. We don't have all the details okay. about the island, yeah. folks. What can we say? Susie's parents realize she's missing, too, and they inform Captain Sharp. Walt, just another cuck king, reminding me <laughs> yes. very much of Murray's character in Royal Tenenbaums. That's right. Sort of oblivious at this point, but Walt and Captain Sharp go out looking together, which is sort of an awkward, funny scene of them driving around in his car. Yeah, well, the funny thing is they know that the boy was missing already, and then... <laughs> So, like, Captain Sharp is just hanging out outside their house. Oh, which, yeah. Which is suspect, And obviously. Walt's like, who's there? And then when he reveals himself, he's like, why are you here? No one called the police. Right. But then Laura just she's jumps like, in. Well, yeah, and she's like, well, Susie's missing. Go find her. Yeah. And then when they get back, Laura finds the correspondence between the two and then subsequently Sam's paintings, <laughs> <laughs> which leads to one of the funniest lines in the movie where... Bill Murray is looking at the paintings, and then he goes, holy Christ, what am I looking at? <laughs> and Francis McDormand is explaining, like, oh, he paints paintings, mostly landscape, yeah. but a few nudes. She's and kind of unemotional about it, too. Well, She's I very matter-of-fact. process what's happening. Yeah. She has a pen pal. It's very intimate. They planned this together. Sam Shikusky. That's my escaped khaki scout. His family died. Holy Christ, what am I looking at? He does watercolors, mostly landscapes, but a few nudes. She said for this? In the little montage we get of the correspondence stuff, Susie very clearly asks, is the girl in the picture supposed to be me? Yeah. So she didn't pose for this. I think they were like, well, we better make it clear that they weren't doing that kind well, of Well, we stuff. know that they haven't been together over this time Yeah, period. I know, but yeah. I think they needed to have her say Let's that. Let's double just, down yeah, on it just, just to make it 100% clear. Because you do briefly see some of the paintings, and I think it would be weird if you were supposed to think, like, oh, it's this underage girl that's in the movie. Yeah, definitely seems uh, unethical, at least. <laughs> Maybe not unethical, but just creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so the search party expands. Some of the scouts are on the trail. Eventually, some of them led by Redford. It is weird, though, because Sharp basically says he's deputizing three of them. Yeah. And it seems like he's going to take just three of them with him, but then they all end up together. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Most of the scouts are interchangeable. That's true. But Lazy Eye, one of the ones deputized, and he's recognizable <laughs> by the bandage over his eye. So this group, led by Redford, confronts Sam and Susie in the woods and tries to capture Sam. During the resulting altercation, Susie injures Redford with a pair of lefty scissors, and a stray arrow fired by one of the scouts kills Camp Ivanhoe's dog, Snoopy. Sad. The scouts flee in a panic, temporarily granting Sam and Susie a reprieve. So, lot to unpack here. First of all, the way that this is shot in the movie reminds me of the violence in The Perks of Being a Wallflower, where oh, yeah. it just sort of cuts after the fact. Right. Although this is supposed to be much more comedic, because... We know from Susie's little montage that she explodes into anger and violence sometimes. Oh, yeah. It happens here. Let's and so say. Redford's riding at them in a dirt bike, and well, Susie somehow stabs him off of the dirt bike <laughs> with the pair of lefty scissors. Yeah, and it seems like maybe attacks some of the other kids. 
I don't know. And they're they're all afraid. scared, yeah. <laughs> She's just a demon. <laughs> Secondly, the thing with the dog. It's funny to me, when I was looking at this stuff up and I was sort of finding different articles and reviews and stuff from the time period, there was an article, I don't know where, I think, I, I want to say The New Yorker, but it was maybe something like that, who knows, where it was basically like, what's Wes Anderson's problem with dogs? And it was all about... <laughs> And then in response, he made the eye yeah, of that's dogs. What, yeah. Well, yeah. that was what I was building towards. Oh. But yeah, so there's a whole article going through how the dogs in Royal Tenenbaums, there's like dog's blood, and then the dog at the end gets hit by that's the right. car yeah. and all that stuff. And then this dog is killed in sort of a comedic way off screen that some audiences reacted poorly to because there was some mild Twitter outrage about the dog dying in this even oh, though yeah. you barely even saw the dog beforehand. Was he a good dog? Who's to say? Yeah, I almost was like, is that something that Gene Hackman said in Royal Tenenbaums? Because it felt like it and I, I, I don't think it was. Keith used to always quote that part after this movie. But yeah, in response, I guess, to all of the stuff about dogs, he literally makes a movie called Isle of Dogs, which is, I don't know, a homophone for I love dogs. There you go. It's his worst movie, probably. So, sure. yeah. <laughs> no, besides that, I don't know if that's why he made it or not, but it's funny to find that article about right. like, why does Wes Anderson hate dogs? Yeah. <laughs> for me, as far as dogs being killed on screen, this is pretty minor. It's not really anything. I would agree. I don't find it disturbing or unsettling. It's weird to see an arrow sticking in the dog and the dog is dead. But again, you didn't really see the dog very much when it was alive. It's just, right. okay. Listen, I'm not rooting for it to happen, but I'm not that bothered <laughs> I'm, by we're it. We're not that broken up about it, right. to be honest. Sam and Susie reach this cove, and this whole little portion of the film is what we were sort of alluding to earlier. <laughs> and when they set up camp, you're, you are like, how are they carrying around this much shit? Although she has like a bunch of suitcases. so She's carrying around a suitcase full of library books. Yeah. <laughs> but they've got like a full tent. They've got stuff for like cooking. Yeah. Your first thought is like, well, they only have one tent. So. <laughs> well, I guess I could sleep out on these rocks. But when they first met up, he's like, well, we should do this in two nights. But they don't really ever address them sleeping together. I, and when I say sleeping together, I literally mean sleeping folks thank you they don't address that though the first night my heart stopped for a second i was like what does he mean oh no (laughs) (laughs) you're like put jumping to like hit the stop button on recording like oh no no he does say like we'll make this trip in two nights right right and it does get dark and and i would be like well what happens after that what happens after the two nights well we'll, no he means we'll get there and no we'll get there in one night it'll be two days yeah yeah okay and then we're just gonna live there i don't know yeah but that was their destination but they don't really address the sleeping arrangements or anything. But when they get to the cove, you're like, okay, well, they have one tent, so this yeah. is awkward. But he doesn't tell her about the bedwetting until the second night. So yeah. clearly he they just sort of gloss over the fact that they've already been together for one night. That's true. I don't know why. Who's to say? <laughs> there you go. Right. Now you can have that to answer my questions. Yeah. But this whole little section at the Cove, definitely, there was a lot of nervousness from the audiences. I can remember feeling that in the theater where people were sort of like... I'm a little anxious about this. And we should explain, I guess, there's a lot of material here where they're in their underwear. Yep. And they start dancing to a record in their underwear on the beach. And it's all very, like, innocent and cutesy. And the stuff that they're wearing isn't, like, particularly revealing. 
you could see them in bathing suits that were probably smaller or the same size. It's not like oh, yeah. they feel almost naked or anything. But they do kiss. Right. And then she's like, oh, it's getting hard or whatever, yeah, yeah. referring to his penis. And then he's like, I don't know, I'm sorry or whatever. And then she's like, you can feel my chest. Yeah. They French kiss. Well, there's almost this fairy tale like feel and, and innocence to a lot of it. And then it's almost like the way that they're talking here is like much more adult. It it's just makes you feel kind of weird. Yeah, it is a subject that people get uncomfortable with when they're older, but it is a very real thing when you're that age. Oh yeah. Got all of these like hormones and emotions flowing and it seems perfectly normal to you when you're 12 to want to feel a 12-year-old's chest. Right. But like when you're watching this happen in an audience, you're you just want to like, look away. You're like, "Oh no." And some critics have interpreted the scene where Sam pierces Susie's ears as sort of a metaphor for losing the virginity, like the piercing and then the blood and all that stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past them to sort of delicately have that in there as as like an implication. Although, look, I'm not passing judgment on anyone listening to this show, but (laughs) losing your virginity at 12 seems crazy to me. Yeah, I would agree. I'm just going to say that. We'll just leave that there. Leave that there. Yeah. (laughs) What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. I want to go on adventures, I think. Not get stuck in one place. How about you? Go on adventures, too. Not get stuck, too. Anyway, we can't predict the exact future. That's true. It's possible I'm near with the bed, by the way. Later, I mean. Okay. I wish I didn't have to mention it, but just in case. I don't want to make you be offended. Of course I won't. What's that one for? The, yeah. It's not an accomplishment button. I inherited it from my mother. It's not actually meant for a mail tour, but I don't give a damn. Are your foster parents still mad at you for getting in trouble so much? I don't think so. We're starting to get to know each other better. I feel we're in a real family now. Not like yours, but similar to one. I always wish I was an orphan. Most of my favorite characters are. I think your lives are more special. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Love you too. When she's reading to Sam this night and he says, read on, that is like exactly halfway through the film and it signifies part two. Oh, okay. In the morning, <laughs> this is a fucking scene. <laughs> They're busted, but not just busted by anyone. It's oh, like yeah, literally in front of everyone. everyone there. <laughs> everyone on the island. <laughs> Essentially, it seems like. Susie's parents... Scoutmaster Ward, Captain yeah. Sharp, the this other is, scouts. I feel like this is something that, and, and maybe it's gender discriminant a little bit, but I feel like this is particularly not something that the dad of a young girl wants to find. Oh, no. And yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? It's just yeah, like, I, holy shit. I do think that there is a an implication that Susie's rage is inherited from her father. Yeah, because Walt does have moments of rage in the movie, just that like he flipping out and yelling. Seems to try to control a little bit, or t- or at least hide. There's like the hilarious 
moment where he's shirtless with an axe and a bottle of booze and he's like <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna go look for a tree to cut down so it's almost yeah. like he knows he's got this anger and he's gonna go like hide it but the anger in his life i guess comes from like a lot of different sources it's sort of up for debate how much he already suspects that his wife's having an affair it seems like there's a lot of distance which is represented on screen because they sleep in separate beds like next right. to each other which is sort of like an homage i think to sitcoms of that era but you know some married couples do sleep in separate beds because they just can't really fall asleep with someone else in the bed or, yeah or there's a lot more like sleep apnea these days and people have like those breathing machines it's just hard to have two people in a bed that way well it's more diagnosed <laughs> but i do think that there have been married couples all throughout time who resort to the separate beds just because they can't stand the other person she's got the jimmy legs yeah. or <laughs> you know whatever yeah different things waking up all the time who knows but aside from whatever the actual explanation as to why a couple would do that would be metaphorically on screen it's like a distance between the two of them and that's obvious but yeah his explosion here it's embarrassing because you're in front of all these other people it's like yeah he's like freaking out because he thinks that his 12 year old daughter is having sex or something but he rips that whole tent up it's like what if she was like yeah, it does seem like... Uh, or something. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know what's going... It's like, yeah, that would be horrible to find, I guess, as a father of a 12-year-old. But now you're, girl, like, but, humiliating her in front well, of Well, yeah, like, now there's, like, boys. all these people watching. It's not just her mother. It's, like, there's other adult men and, like, I don't know. It's, By the way, something that should be pointed out about the island in general, not a lot of chicks. Well, yeah, we don't see very many. The phone operator woman seems like she's interested in Scoutmaster Ward. I yeah, guess well, that's sort of implied. Well, if you're Ward, it's like you got to go for it, I feel like. I do like when the scouts are the one is like, well, what is your real job? And he's like, I'm a math teacher. It's like, no, I'm going to change my answer. Yeah, <laughs> he comes back and like, I'm going to change my answer. I'm a scoutmaster. I'm a part-time math teacher. <laughs> Everyone's furious. Sam and Susie are separated. Ward gives Sam a letter from the Billingsleys, his foster family. I do feel like Ward could have like waited a few minutes to be like, all right. Let's wait till we like get back to somewhere. I also feel like maybe you could just find a way to tell him, not just give him the letter. Yeah, but maybe he thinks that it's not his business. Yeah, but he is like an authoritative figure. Yeah, that's Almost, true. Uh, dare I say a father figure to Sam. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But he resigned from Khaki Scouts. Well, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I think he has to give him the letter. Maybe he could have like prefaced the letter and said something, but he has to What definitely you're about give to read the is not good. <laughs> Brace yourself. (laughs) The letter states that they no longer wish to house him. We can't invite you back. And so it's arranged that Sam will stay with Captain Sharp until, quote, social services. Someone who's played by Tilda Swinton arrives. Which is the character's name, by the way. Social services is a nameless character all in blue, played by Tilda Swinton. Her plan is to place Sam in a juvenile refuge and possibly consider electroshock therapy. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Yeah, it seems like an insane overreaction. He's had some minor behavioral issues. It's not like he's like actually done anything. Yeah. That bad. She's the one that stabbed the kid with the scissors. Yeah, well, she seems insane. <laughs> that's true. Was it like the doghouse or something that he caught on fire? Yeah, and in his it explanation was, was like he was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what the real story is with those like montage moments, but yeah, that's pretty funny. Sharp and Ward are both upset by this turn of events. So even though 
we're supposed to see this sort of as like the kids against the world and everything. Some of the adult characters are very like sympathetic. Oh, and, yeah. And they're mostly looking out for the best interest of the kids. And Sharp and Ward are kind of like blown away by this. They're like, what? <laughs> Shirtless Bill Murray with a bottle of booze and an axe looking for a tree to cut down. <laughs> He's befuddled by both his daughter and his wife. But the movie's a tight 93 minutes or something. Yeah, which we, is great. There's not like a lot of backstory. We don't really get to spend time with all these characters. So we sort of have to like jump to conclusions about what's going on in Walt yeah. and Laura's marriage and how much he knows. Or well, we know, know there's or... problems there, obviously. There's sort of a interesting scene where Laura is giving Susie a bath, which <laughs> it sounds crazier than it is. Yeah. She's more of just like watching her back or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Not actually. 12 like... does seem old to be having not for a like women to talk. She's not uh, like right. literally okay, yeah. giving her a bath. I just didn't know how else to phrase that in my notes, I guess, is the joke. Okay, yep. (laughs) Susie is sort of, like, angry and mad and to sort of, like, hurt her mother. She says that she knows about her mom and that, quote, sad, dumb policeman. (laughs) Which, how bad is it when it's obvious to a 12-year-old that you're (laughs) a sad, dumb adult? (laughs) And Laura, like, doesn't deny it, and she's just sort of... Like, well, he's not dumb, but I guess he is sad. Yeah. It's nice of her to leap to his defense like that. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Although she is going to break up with him shortly. Yeah. Although I always get the sense that that's not the last chapter in their book. Susie wonders out loud, we're in love, we just want to be together, what's wrong with that? And it's a fair question, and it makes you wonder why they resorted to such a drastic thing in the first place. And I guess it just speaks to the unhappiness that both of the kids feel. Because if you take a step back, no one was preventing them from knowing each other or meeting each other in real life. It was just, when we get this chance, we're going to like run away together and right. do this crazy plan. And it, it was all or nothing. It was not, well, let's try to be normal first. <laughs> That's true. And see what happens. It was, no, well, we they have had to, to do escape. this. Yeah. I guess because he doesn't live on the island and he was only going to be there once a year. I guess. That's fair. That's a, like a, 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 shot. a restrictive part of the narrative. Sam's staying with Captain Sharp in the meantime. Sharp is letting him take some sips of beer. Doesn't it remind you of Stranger Things a little bit? This guy's kind of like a hopper character. Yeah. Taken in the, the stray. <laughs> Sam is 11. Yeah. <laughs> Minus Redford, the remainder of Camp Ivanhoe have a change of heart up in their insane treehouse at the top of a tree. Yeah, they're like, he's supposed to be our brother. They're realizing that they have not treated Sam fairly, and so they decide to help Sam and Susie. So the first thing they do is they go to Susie's house and help her escape, just as Lauren decides. I call her, like, Lauren and Laura. I, I know that I have a yeah. history of thinking they're the same well, name. Well, do we really need both names? Like, if we all just decided that every Lauren was now a Laura... Or vice versa, wouldn't we all just kind of be okay with that? I do feel like they're just the same name. Yeah. Aren't they? (laughs) I feel like we've had this exact conversation (laughs) off mic before. I don't know even what her... Is she Lauren or Laura in the movie? I I, can't even remember. I don't know. Well, it's the same thing. She goes out to I just call her Frances McDormand. All right, Fran. (laughs) She decides to end things with Captain Sharp right as the kids are breaking Susie out of the house. Yeah. Kind of sad. I mean, you do feel bad for Sharp here. Although, like I said, she kind of leaves it with him like, well, I'll probably see you tomorrow. 
Yeah, it's unclear why she decides right now to do it because... Well, I think it's in the wake of her daughter running away, she's realizing that I think that she needs to try to yeah, well, her, yeah, her the daughter confronting together. her, I guess, yeah. about it. Because that scene of them in the separate beds hasn't even happened yet, and it feels like that's almost like a very confrontational moment. The kids then come for Sam. I love this moment of Sam just sort of being in bed, and in a weird way, you can kind of like relate to it from just things that happen in your life, not necessarily as young as 12, but maybe older in life, where... Yeah you have like this big night and you're like tied up in some new thing and it's like very exciting. And then something happens and you're like, it's not over yet. There's more adventure somehow. Yeah. Like the night is not over somehow. Yeah, like yeah. I know that I'm in bed and it seems like it's over and she's been separated, but now it's like, we're back. We're right. It's going to keep going. By the way, that's a, a feeling that at some point in your life will never happen again. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, we're, we're, approaching like two decades of not having anything (laughs) like that but yeah it's something that comes with the youth and like fun and a lot of times it's tied up in like young love but it it could just be a great night and then somehow it just keeps rolling into something else when you kind of think it's over and then here they are to break sam out and they're going to find cousin ben a relative of one of the scouts cousin ben works at fort lebanon a larger khaki scout summer camp on saint jack wood island you are just kind of like are these islands just loaded with these khaki troop camps i guess there's just not a lot going on on the island so this is like a place where the kids of the new england area go for these summer things even though the wasiata of i thought it was a nice touch that their summer was like september because i do think back in the 60s and in prior decades and stuff summer break for school it started later and it ended later. Yeah, that is weird to think about. I might be wrong about this because obviously I wasn't alive, but I do think that like summer breaks back then sometimes went for most of September. Could be something I have no knowledge of. But they went to school probably till like almost the end of June or something. Which it was just like it shifted like, in a yeah. certain way. Yeah, maybe Going not. To school throughout the summer more definitely would have sucked. But it's weird though because it when. At the end of the film, when we see, like, Scoutmaster Ward and he's, like, doing his little audio tape recordings of his journals or whatever, he says October at one point. They're still doing this? I'm like, is it just on weekends or? Yeah, that is unclear. And it would be cold, especially up there. They're still wearing, like, shorts and short shirts. All right. Maybe it was just warmer in the 60s. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Global warming has kind of shifted everything. But that sort of plays into the unreal world of wes anderson where summer is just forever and these people don't really have important jobs and they just sort of are khaki scouts that's their job yeah i mean even (laughs) these two parents that are lawyers you kind of just get the sense that they never work yeah because that's not fun right movie why would we care (laughs) and even the people that do have jobs i mean their jobs seem like you could not do it and nothing would happen (laughs) like the police officer cousin ben is under the command of Commander Pierce, who is Scoutmaster Ward's superior as well. I like when they're going to see Cousin Ben, and the one that's actually Ben's cousin, they ask him if Ben's like trustworthy, and he just goes, normally I'd say no. And that's just <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> well, yeah, they don't have any uh, options, because I guess word has reached Sam that electroshock treatment and the juvenile refuge is on the table although we don't actually see anyone say that to him yeah. I don't think but cousin Ben then brings it up later so clearly this is something that 
the khaki scouts are talking about. Yeah. So it's known. You do feel like more people, which I mean, I guess they're trying to save him and trying to get him away. But you would think that more adults would be hearing this and be like, well, we can't let this happen to this kid. But I guess that is what happens, though. Yeah, I know. But in the (laughs) 60s, the movie. Yeah. In in the 60s, though, more people were probably just like, well, that's just how they treat these people. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Some people. But yeah, you'd only have to really examine it for like two minutes and be like, well, it's insane to do it to anyone. It doesn't do anything except destroy them, really. But even if you, you were using it as an excuse for people that were like truly disturbed and had huge behavioral issues, it's not really the case with Sam. Right. He doesn't really seem violent. No, or any. No. It's sort of crazy. I like the little hazy orange sunrise when they're paddling across oh, yeah. the water and everything. It looks really cool. The storm that the narrator Bob Balaban has been telling us about is now moving in slowly and we're reaching that point that we've been warned about because bob balaban even though he interacts with the characters at one point he's almost like casey Kasem in that episode oh yeah zach attack where he's like (laughs) there and also not there right he's talking about the future the present and the past all at once yep because bob balaban's like telling us that this big storm is going to occur in three days time so he knows these things and yet he also interacts with the characters right it's very strange yeah, at one point, I don't know what those giant orbs are that he's, like, sending up like, in the sky. I think they use those things to, like, track the weather. Or okay. Like, they're kind of, like, weather. It's like twister. Things. Yeah. Kind okay. of. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Did you file the motion for continuance? Peabody versus Henderson? It was sustained. Good. Did the judge consider your application for leniency, Rogers versus Gentile? He granted it. Great. I'm sorry, Walt. It's not your fault. Which injuries are you apologizing for, specifically? Specifically? Whichever one still hurt. Half of those were self-inflicted. I hope the roof flies off and I get sucked up into space. You'll be better off without me. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Why? We're all they've got, Walt. Before they reach Cousin Ben, though, there's a few scenes. Walt and Lauren. I wrote Lauren again. I'm thinking it might be Lauren. Lauren seems right. They're in bed, the two separate beds, and Walt's like, I wish the roof would blow off and I would suck me into the sky. (laughs) Everyone would be better off without me. And she's just like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And his response to that is actually pretty great. He goes, why? (laughs) Yeah, that does feel like a familiar conversation. That's the closest we get to confirmation that he knows about the affair because they don't really ever talk about it directly. Yeah. But they're sort of just at their wits end with Susie. They don't really understand her and they don't know what to do. The characters are kind of goofy, but I think the real thing there is that is like tough. If you just have a kid, you expect kids to be like joyous and happy. And I think that it is like a straining thing if they're just not. Yeah. 
and it's also worrying her explosions of anger where she like attacks a girl at school and she throws a rock through the window well there's certainly an unpredictability to that (laughs) makes life interesting yeah yeah but Susie, meanwhile is reading to the troop which i think is like a really great scene where she ends a chapter and they're all like keep going keep going (laughs) (laughs) the whole troop is listening to her read her brother discovers her missing at the same time that not a lot of eyes on making sure she's still there why even put the paper mache dummy that actually (laughs) makes it faster (laughs) that they know know that she's not there i think that's just because it's funny yeah that happens at the same time scout master ward discovers camp ivanhoe is now completely vacant and he's lost his entire troop yeah kind of a an unfair blow to him because in a way they are acting more like brothers and more like a unified group but they have to do this sort of underhanded mission because now there is an actual real threat and that is the threat of what social services thinks that they have to do to sam so yeah they sort of have to break the rules now but that reflects poorly on poor scoutmaster ward totally it's definitely a a fireable offense we meet commander pierce played by harvey keitel He's sort of getting a shave. <laughs> I think that's Wes Anderson's brother. Oh, is it? That guy that plays like his little like lackey guy. Okay. Now, the end of this movie, there's sort of a frantic pace because now stakes have been established with social services. We meet Cousin Ben, played by Jason Schwartzman. Cousin Ben's plan is to take Sam and Susie to a crabbing boat anchored off the island so that Sam can work as a crewman. Yeah. And avoid social services. They certainly take on a lot of 12-year-old crewmen that weigh like 60 pounds. Unclear what Susie would be doing if all of this somehow worked. Yeah. Where would she be living? On the boat? Does <laughs> The two of them are going to be together? I don't really understand what the plan is. I understand that it's just supposed to be funny. Yeah, but... and you don't think anything actually would have worked out here. However, Sam wants Susie to be his wife first. And it just so happens that Cousin Ben is a civil law scrivener authorized to declare births deaths and marriages although points out that this wouldn't be legally binding sure i can't offer you a legally binding union it won't hold up in the state the county or frankly any courtroom in the world due to your age lack of a license and failure to get parental consent but the ritual does carry a very important moral weight within yourselves you can't enter into this lightly look into my eyes do you love each other? Yes, we do. But, but think about what I'm saying. Are you sure you're ready for this? Yes, we are. They're not listening to me. Let me rephrase it. Oh, we're in a hurry. Are you chewing? Spit out the gum, sister. In fact, everybody. I don't like the snappy attitude. This is the most important decision you've made in your lives. Now go over by that trampoline and talk it through before you give me another quick answer. Ben's fee is going to be this tennis ball can of nickels. Yeah, which he's actually really attached to. Yeah, it doesn't want to help them with. And then they do this ceremony, eventually, and they do the director trademark of Wes Anderson, the slow motion of them walking out of this marriage thing. I always love the choice of when he incorporates the slow motion. Yeah. The best one might be Life Aquatic. Well, that's (laughs) like a funeral, right, at the end? Yeah, yeah. I love it in... Life Aquatic, though, like after the screening yeah, at the yeah, end. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Isn't that where they play the Bowie song, Queen Bitch, or is that at the beginning of the movie? It's been a while since uh, I watched Life Aquatic. It might be the end, yeah. I feel like uh, Life on Mars is at the beginning. Okay. The group, led by Cousin Ben, Sam, and Susie, gets to the dock. Cousin Ben's going to row them to this 
destination. I guess leave the rest of the troop there. They get on the boat, they row away, and then they realize that Susie has left her binoculars behind. I don't think we've exactly mentioned the binoculars, although that is how she spied on her mother meeting with Captain Sharp. It's something that she uses at the very beginning of the film, sort of the opening little shot of her looking through them. And she has referred to the binoculars as her magic power in relation to the books that she likes. So this is a big deal for her. Cannot be left behind. They come back. So Sam leaves Cousin Ben, Susie, and the other Camp Ivanhoe kids to go get them. And this is where Redford makes his return. Reemerges. He's at like a medic tent. The infirmary. At, what is this place called? Fort Lebanon. (laughs) Checking my notes. Yeah, I was like, no idea. He's just there. He's holding the binoculars, kind of taunting him. And they have this sort of confrontational conversation. And Sam just runs and attacks him and is like punching his stab wound to get the binoculars. But Redford alerts the campers at this larger camp, including Commander Pierce, that the fugitive is in their midst. They sound the alarm. Sam is pursued by a mob through the woods. Bunch of khaki scouts chasing him down. Until he's finally chased onto a lightning field just as the storm is arriving where Sam is then struck by lightning. Oh, yeah. Which is a very, like, jarring moment in the theater. <laughs> yeah. We're like, what is the fuck? Is this kid dead? <laughs> Just like anything else in the movie, though, this dramatic moment is played for laughs, where you're like, oh, he's fine. Right. And he just, like, looks like he's burnt, and he's sort of, like, wiping his glasses off. Reunited with Susie and Camp Ivanhoe, Sam survives the lightning, They are all pursued by the scouts of Fort Lebanon, as well as an arriving social services, Susie's parents, Captain Sharp, (laughs) and Scoutmaster Ward. I'll tell you what, this island can organize a search party. Yeah, it all is very like heightened and sort of out of nowhere. There's a brief moment with Scoutmaster Ward where he's sort of humiliated by Commander Pierce and he's stripped of his rank, but then he has to then rescue Commander Pierce because of the flood that comes right. in and yes. sort of isolates him whenever the fireworks explode <laughs> it's sort of a ridiculous moment but it's a redemption very quickly for scoutmaster ward who was like brought low and then all of a sudden has to be the hero immediately the storm is a hurricane and a flash flood strikes it all leads back to saint jack's church the place where Susie and sam first met seems like it could do a lot of damage to the island and turns out it does It's the emergency shelter for St. Jack's Island, so everyone convenes there, unaware that this is where our fugitive couple has already gone, and they're there as well, dressed as the animals from the... The play. The play from the year before, up in the balcony. Where's the boy? We don't know yet. That's not acceptable. What do you want me to say, lady? I'm going to get Jed a cup of coffee. You're Captain Sharp. That's correct. I'm social services. I remanded the boy into your personal custody. You're responsible for his safety. I'm told that he's just been struck by lightning. It's the first I've heard of it. It's true. Scoutmaster Ward, I presume? Yes, ma'am. Your reputation precedes you. You two are the most appallingly incompetent custodial guardian social services has ever had the misfortune to encounter in a 27-year career. What do you have to say for yourselves? You can't do this. They'll eat him alive in there. Where? Say him in a place again. Juvenile refuge. Juvenile refuge. Sounds like jail. Just find the boy and deliver him to social services. Nothing else is in your power. 
I'm sorry. Can we get back to the rescue now? Susie is still out there. Who are you? Walt and Laura Bishop. Their daughter's the missing girl. The parents of the stabber. I object to that description. She was attacked. Excuse me. I want the details about that. Where's the scout you knifed? Right here. Filmate Redford, sir. What's his condition? He may suffer some limited chronic kidney insufficiency. Here's the report. We don't have time for that. She's right. Let's go. Stop! Nobody's going anywhere. He's not getting shock therapy. That's it! I am citing you for gross misconduct. You are hereby summoned. I'm writing you a back. Be notified that you stand accused of mistreatment. What are you talking about? I won't let you do it. Look! They're gone. Who? Susie? All of the adults argue. There's a lot of fighting and yelling because Sharp and Ward are like. This what? kind of feels like an acting out of like kids with parents arguing. You know what I mean? Where the kids are in a room and parents are arguing and the kids are hearing everything. That's what this this kind of feels like a larger scale version of that. You mean like somebody's parents or something? Yeah. Yeah, because they're arguing essentially over the fate of the kids. And they're unaware, mostly, I guess. I, Captain Sharp did look up at one point right. and kind of see them and was like, wait a minute. Because I think Sam left his coonskin cap <laughs> visible for a minute. Oh, yeah. So he might know that they're there, but the other, like, Susie's parents don't know, and they're all kind of yelling. And social services is like, well, this dude's out of control. And then <laughs> Social services is about to take every kid on the island. Yeah, it's almost like Pinocchio or, or something where it's always like this darker <laughs> thing with orphans and shit where you're oh, just yeah. like, this is the most horrible thing imaginable. Right. And somehow it's a kid's movie. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually just sort of this very mild villain who's yeah, yeah. just sort of like doesn't know what's going on and is taking the overall look at it and just making judgments based on that. When the kids are discovered, I think Redford's the one that points them out. The lights flash off, and then they flee to the roof of the church in the middle of this terrible storm. Yeah, it was funny watching this now. is like, weirdly reminding me of The Lighthouse, the movie. <laughs> William Defoe just, like, nude up on top of this building. <laughs> William Defoe appears in a lot of it's true. Wes Anderson movies. They end up climbing up to the steeple of the church while Sharp comes after them, all while negotiating with social services to become Sam's legal guardian over walkie-talkies with the lawyers, yeah, I know. Susie's parents in the mix. Sort Giving of, like legal advice on why this is okay. It's strange that they're just sort of like, yeah, it would be great if Sam Counselors? lived on the island yeah. now. You know what I mean? Right. You'd still think there'd be like, well, we can't let them anywhere near each other. Yeah, th- there's been two runaways in a short period of time. Although, you know, I guess... At the end, you're kind of like, well, I guess what can we do? We just have to let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd find that you're actually better off letting it happen. Yeah, the because... more you fight it, the more you're pushing them together. The yeah. less you fight it, it's just going to burn out right. and be over. <laughs> just as all of that is finalized and then agreed to by Sam up on this steeple, lightning strikes the steeple, destroying it. But Sharp, who has brought a rope, is holding on to that rope attached to the church while he's also holding on to Sam, who's got a hold of Susie, and they're all dangling off the roof. And sort of <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty wild scene. Moment. <laughs> it really is just a cartoon at the end. 
I don't know if it's a cartoon, but yeah, it's not real. Right. It's sort of just a a completely ridiculous thing that's highly stylized and I think supposed to be funny. Oh yeah. And so the island regroups, and Bob Balaban, the narrator, tells us that in the aftermath of this storm, the crop production was out of control and tasted really good, which I think might be part of the Noah's Ark flood as well. Oh, okay. Just sort of a rebirth of this island. Everyone regroups. And the long and short of it is Sam gets to live on New Penzance Island with Captain Sharp and thus continue seeing Susie probably brings a little fulfillment to Captain Sharp's life as well yeah I think that's supposed to be his arc is now he's found something and he gets to be this father figure I don't know I think in 2020 there'd probably be a little bit more of a background check I don't know if you're just letting a single man adopt a child I think adoption is like a pretty tough thing to accomplish it it is but there's also the unwanted kids that's true which i think is what they're kind of filing sam as like yeah. he he clearly has not been adopted by anybody right. so they're kind of just like well fuck it <laughs> this dude <laughs> you want wants him them. yeah <laughs> you want this asshole <laughs> fine he's yours the movie ends with a little scene of sam at summer's end with Susie and her brothers and then he kind of sneaks out the window when the kids are called to dinner he's painted a little picture of their little secret cove their inlet and he's now named it moonrise kingdom and the narration from bob balaban leading into the scene has told us that that little inlet no longer exists because of the storm like washed it away so it was sort of this secret moment in time that's now gone and it's it, it really is truly just theirs to exist in their memory it's sort of like a sweet little thing bittersweet because it's sad yeah. it doesn't exist but and really it's just an awesome theirs. look and i think the cover on the criterion yeah just that cove saying moonrise kingdom yeah because it fades from the painting into like a real shot like right. an aerial shot of yeah. the beach with like their tent on it and it says moonrise kingdom like in rocks or something yep yeah it's pretty cool the packaging and the cover for the criterion of this is pretty sweet that does it there's your moonrise kingdom wes anderson yeah. it's it's kids qu- it's quick but it's good it's painless yep <laughs> like I said, a lot of Anderson's movies do have that vein of darkness and angst in them. Yeah. And this one has it because right. the kids are, quote, disturbed. But It's a little bit more of an underbelly. Yeah, I think it's more like a, a joyful ending than a lot of his films, which have not necessarily sad endings, but more of like the bittersweet, yeah. where this seems you more sweet like than anything. Most of his movies would just be like about the Bill Murray character and what's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Folks, that brings us to the end of the show. That's Should right. we do recommendations? I can. I don't have like one that I'm feeling super strongly about but oh great everyone loves to hear that before you recommend them something <laughs> here's something you should watch but i don't feel that great no no the it. movie's good but i'm not it's just random well i mean we could go through your history of recommendations <laughs> yeah if we're going to start critiquing them now <laughs> well no i mean i, I know it's, it, that's kind of my thing is like recommend things that are people are like oh my god 
burying their yeah, head especially in their me when I'm editing this yeah. and I get to the recommendations and I just want to throw my computer out the window. <laughs> just like, what the fuck? Yeah, even if it's a movie that you like, you're just like, come on. <laughs> you asshole. Yeah. All right, what is it? Let's get to it. All right, streaming on Hulu. All right, fair watched, enough. Watched it last night. And I do, I, I do try to focus on things that are streaming at the time so that it's timely when people listen although like this stuff just changes which platform it's on like every three months christopher nolan the prestige okay hadn't watched in i don't know 10 years it's been a long time kind of weirdly tucked into his filmography now because before the dark knight yeah you know but it is a cool movie well done there's definitely a segment of people out there who consider it like his best movie it's weird because it feels like a big movie but also doesn't really feel like it would have mainstream appeal there's big stars in it but the content of it is mostly dark and just doesn't really feel mainstream at all yeah i love it i'm not amongst those people who think it's his best movie. oh neither anything, do i but okay so after batman begins but then you move on through his filmography and you're like dark knight inception dark knight rises and like the fact that like this movie is kind of like tucked in there i don't know it's just kind of a not a hidden gem but certainly like a cool movie that i I think kind of gets lost in yeah it's sort of a wider smaller scale idea more contained to what it is you know what i mean yeah absolutely this giant insane budget like crazy which we kind of expect from him from like every movie now yeah it's more early feeling yeah yeah as far as his career but it's strange because he had already started into the batman franchise right. so i don't know i watched it last night good movie my recommendation is porno <laughs> which you can get on the internet that's no. right okay <laughs> it's a movie called porno actually from 2019 i believe although it might actually be 2020 i don't know look folks it's not amazing but you can watch it on shutter it is a horror movie. Is there anyone recognizable in it? No. Okay. Oh my, no. <laughs> it's a low budget affair. It takes place at what I believe is supposed to be a Christian movie theater, and then they find a secret underground porno theater that Sweet. the Christian theater was built on top of, and it all <laughs> takes place in the theater. They watch this crazy porno movie they find on a reel. It turns out it's like this cursed thing. We get into like a demon succubus situation. Nice. Me and a friend of the podcast watched this last weekend sort of randomly after watching Reanimator, which he like I guess hadn't seen. So okay. we watched that and then as almost an afterthought, this was just put on and then we got sort of sucked <laughs> into it. All right. And there is like a really gross, disturbing sequence in this movie that once if you actually watch this i I doubt that anyone's rushing out to sign up for (laughs) shutter to track down porno but if you do watch this movie and you get to this you'll know exactly what i mean all right because you're like oh my god is this gross (laughs) (laughs) it is so nasty oh boy doesn't sound like it's right for me there's some fun nudity in it i liked the girl in it she doesn't get nude it's like the demon woman that's nude but it's a shame I liked the girl. The kids were like okay. They they seem interchangeable. Not sure. really anything too special, but it was kind of fun if you're looking for one of those like late night grindhousey. Well, I often watch am. a movie with a buddy type yeah. thing. Not anything too serious or whatever, just to gross you out. 
So that's my recommendation because I have not yet had the opportunity to watch the new Fincher movie on Netflix, which just came out, I think, the day before we record this. So So look forward to next episode when maybe that comes up. Yeah, but since we mentioned it now, I probably won't. All right, good. (laughs) Who knows? All right, folks, thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Give us a rating and review. And we thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. This summer I went swimming, this summer I might have drowned, but I held my breath and I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around, moved my arms around. This summer I swam in the ocean and I swam in a swimming pool, salt my wounds, chlorine my eyes, I'm a self-destructive fool, I'm a self-destructive fool. gonna do the turkey yeah dad wants ambrosia so i guess we gotta get those miniature marshmallows and i'll do the crescent rolls and you do the cranberry you know i can't cook (laughs) yeah well i'll see you tomorrow then gobble gobble May I help you? Yes. How may I help you? You can start by wiping that fucking dumbass smile off your rosy fucking cheeks. Then you can give me a fucking automobile, a fucking Datsun, a fucking Toyota, a fucking Mustang, a fucking Buick, four fucking wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of fucking nowhere with fucking keys to a fucking car that isn't fucking there. And I really didn't care to fucking walk down a fucking highway and across a fucking runway. 
to get back here to have you smile at my fucking face. I want a fucking car right fucking now. May I see your rental agreement? I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're fucked. 